Hello, and welcome to the Providence College Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Kay, and I'm joined by producer Chris Judge with Class of 2005. Here at the Providence College Podcast, we bring you interesting stories from the Fire family. This week, we're speaking with Dr. Deirdre Snyder of the Department of Management. Dr. Snyder, who earned her PhD in organizational behavior at UNC Chapel Hill, teaches organizational behavior on the undergraduate and graduate levels at the Providence College School of Business. Her research interests include the impact of emotions on behaviors at work. We are talking to her today about how we can build community virtually in this age of social and physical distancing. Dr. Snyder, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. I'm happy to be here. So last year, you presented at the Academy of Management's annual meeting on the effects of loneliness at work. Can you tell us a little bit about your findings? Yeah, absolutely. So this we've continued to evolve that paper. It is now um, under review, and it is called Lonely Hearts, Helping Hands, The Social Function of Loneliness at Work. It's a project that I'm working on together with Bill Becker at Virginia Tech and Mike Christian at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm really proud of the paper. I, I think it, there's some interesting findings in there, so I'm, I'm hopeful that it will continue to make its way through the, the research publishing process. Um, so just to give you a little bit of background about that paper, there's a lot of work that's been done to date to study what's called chronic loneliness. So here's what we know about chronically lonely people. They're at a greater risk for cognitive decline, um, greater risk for cardiovascular disease, sleep dysfunction, suicide. Um, in fact, there's a recent meta-analysis that's been done by a, a psychology professor out of BYU. Her name is Julianne Holt Lundstadt, and she found that chronic loneliness has the same impact on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, making it as dangerous or more dangerous than obesity. So chronic loneliness we know is terrible for us. It's terrible for us physically as well as psychologically. Thankfully, right, most of us don't walk around feeling chronically lonely all the time. But most of us do know and recognize what it is to feel lonely, even if it's just temporarily, right? So that fleeting feeling of, of loneliness when maybe you see a couple colleagues go out to lunch and you're not invited. Or maybe you're looking at social media and you recognize a whole bunch of people are out having fun and didn't include you, right? So while we maybe don't feel lonely all the time, we do recognize what those lonely feelings are as they come and go throughout the day. And so that's what we were really interested in studying is how is it that feelings of loneliness ebb and flow throughout a given workday? And based on those feelings, how does it impact our behavior at work? Um, so to study that, we looked at one organization and we studied, um, we created a survey that had people answer about their emotions as well as their behaviors three times a day over the course of 10 days. So we got sort of a snapshot of how they felt in the morning sort of around lunchtime and then at the end of the day. And also we track their behaviors in and out during a given workday. Um, and so what we found, the results of that study, that again, I, I think are really interesting and I, I hope that, that they end up um, getting published. We found that the social context at work matters an awful lot. And so what we were looking at was how well people people's 
belonging needs were typically met at work. So here's a, for example, so for people who, who tend to have solid, supportive relationships with their colleagues, they feel like their belonging needs are met at work. When these people felt lonely at work, and so again, I'm not talking chronic loneliness, I'm feeling like, you know, a lonely, a little bit more lonely than average. Um, When they felt lonely, it created a sense of anxiety, and that anxiety spurred them on to be helpful, to help other colleagues, to reach out to other people, and then as a result of this helping behavior, they actually felt less lonely at the end of the day. Now, what I think is really interesting about this work in this paper is that the exact opposite things happened when people were not used to having their belonging needs met. So if you can imagine another colleague who maybe doesn't feel like they have supportive colleagues, who maybe doesn't feel welcomed or supported or included within their work team. For these people, when they felt lonely, they're kind of used to it, right? Because they're not used to having their belonging needs met. They look around the room or their team and they're like, ah, these people probably aren't going to support me anyway. So the fact that they felt lonely it wasn't really socially anxious for them. These people helped less. And by the nature of helping less, at the end of the day, they actually felt more lonely. So we, what we ended up finding was actually spirals in both directions. So for people whose belonging needs were typically met at work, they tend to reach out to help others and there's a spiral up, upwards and out of loneliness. But the opposite was also true. So for for people whose belonging needs are not typically or traditionally met at work, they helped less. And as a nature, as a result of them helping less, they felt more lonely at the end of the day. These spirals are really interesting. And I'm wondering if there was a person who typically felt lonely at work, if they had their belonging feelings met, did they then, were they then prompted to be more helpful those days? You know, does it, does that kind of behavior, does the opposite work? Yeah. So that, that is what we found that when people traditionally feel supported within their work environment, those people tend to be more helpful. And as a result of them helping other people, they tend to feel less lonely at the end of the day. This is really interesting. And so I'm curious, you know, what types of advice you would have for people who, you know, to create these supportive environments? What, what, What could employers do and supervisors and middle managers do to create an environment where everyone feels supported to encourage? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So we have a couple suggestions that I think are important takeaways for leaders and managers within organizations. Um, So the first is to the extent that that we can really create cultures that are supportive and are inclusive, such that people's belonging needs are addressed, such that people feel welcomed, feel included, and feel supported, Uh, to the extent that that's true and that we can collectively as a whole work to create that kind of environment, this can really help alleviate feelings of loneliness. Um, I mean, ultimately, what we were after was Given what we know about chronic loneliness, and now what we know or what we found in this paper about these loneliness spirals, I what I'm excited about is it's possible that through helping other colleagues, this could almost be like the, the, the switch that can flip us from somebody who could be spiraling into sort of a chronic lonely feeling 
Um, if we can get them, if we can reach out and get them to feel more included, feel more supportive, and create opportunities for them to help other colleagues at work, we may be able to pull them out of loneliness. And I think that has, I hope that that has really important implications for um, organizations, but also for all of us. So I guess my first piece of advice is um, do what we can to create cultures that are inclusive, uh, because the more we have those kinds of inclusive cultures, the more likely it is that people will reach out and help other people. Um, and that can help alleviate loneliness and potentially disrupt this, the, the lonely, the downward spiral of loneliness. Um, and then, you know, we want to try to encourage managers as best we can to deliberately foster these supportive work relationships, to be proactive, to create opportunities for employees to help each other, um, particularly if they seem a little bit disconnected from their colleagues or from their coworkers. Um, so it really does put some onus on managers, leaders, um, as well as, you know, those in charge of trying to set cultures within organizations to try to do what they can to recognize when and if they, they feel like they see someone who may be disconnected from the group, um, try to create opportunities to pull that person back in, and, and oftentimes creating opportunities for helping. Um, so can you put that person, um, can you ask that person to mentor someone else, or can you ask that person to represent the department in, um, some sort of a cross-functional committee, for example, uh, both of those might help pull that person back into the group, um, as well as help give them an opportunity be, to be helpful to other people. Um, and that seems like it might help alleviate some of their, their feelings of loneliness. Interesting. So a supervisor could intervene by providing, creating an opportunity for, so maybe not for a person to spontaneously decide to be helpful, but put them in the role of being helpful proactively. Absolutely. Right. So that those that's an implication that, that we suggest from our study. I think that would need to be tested. Um, so just to be clear, we haven't designed a study that actually tests that necessarily. So an intervention in which some people help and some people don't. Um, but I think that that's a, a fantastic next step um, that would absolutely help us um, understand the link between helping and reduced loneliness over the long term. Like there might be some implications that we could draw on you know, the social distancing and the physical distancing that we're working on right now um, in this era of coronavirus, and we're all being told to kind of, you know, break our normal habits of connecting with community, whether it's through religious services or, you know, bowling leagues and soccer leagues, you know, our students, our children aren't at home, are at home and not in their usual um, school environments. Um, I'm curious if you could share some advice on how people could build community virtually to sort of combat this loneliness. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I think as I've been looking at both my research as, as well as what's going on um, now with the coronavirus and, and COVID-19 are all of our social distancing. It's interesting to me when I look at my work on loneliness and how it impacts people's behavior. We can think back 
historically, right? Humans are hardwired for social contact. We're as, as a result of our evolution, right? As hunters and gatherers, individuals with deeper social connections had an advantage over loners in terms of access to food, defense against predators, um, protection from invading tribes, right? So we're, we're hardwired to actually want to be together. And we even see this happening as a result of other sort of natural disasters that we've collectively faced in the past. So think about the terrorist attacks in 2001, um, Katrina, Sandy, Maria, right? All the various hurricanes. I mean, think about what we all did as a result of those disasters. We, we, we rallied the troops, right? We all came together and we made big donations and we did everything we possibly could to sort of support each other through these hard times. Right. So this sort of sense of a shared spirit or collaboration, it can really bring us together. But COVID-19 is different. Right. And, and, and it's this disaster that we're facing. But yet, as a result of this crisis, we're told, in fact, the best way to halt the spread is to socially distance ourselves, to pull ourselves back. So the very way that we tend to want to try to respond is by reaching out and helping other people. We're now told, in fact, we have to remain physically distanced from each other to stop seeking fellowship in our churches or restaurants, at least temporarily. And I, I think this creates a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety because many of us feel like we, we no longer have access to what's traditionally our, our support system and our network. And it makes us feel, you know, almost that we're sort of a boat at, at sea without a, a mast or a sail or a rudder. Um, and so my my best suggestion is to recognize that social distancing doesn't have to break our social bonds. There have been some, I think, really amazing examples of this that I've seen on social media. Probably you have too. So you may have seen uh, the video with the Italians quarantined in their homes, all joining together and singing in song. I don't know if you've seen that one, but... Um, there's also some really great examples closer to home. So for example, um, I know of two separate groups of management majors at Providence College that have on a dime reconnected as a group and done some amazing work. So one group uh, was working with Tom King's org theory class and they put together a video that features 40 or more students from PC, but also from all around the country that are have a, a, an impactful message to say about colleges against COVID-19. And then Matthew Erickson, another uh, management professor, he's got a group of students, he's been working with a group of students all semester on a, an independent study on anxiety. And this group of students also put together a video, but also a guidebook. And so using their research that they've done, been working on all semester, they have messages out there about COVID-19, messages for seniors, messages for student athletes, but they also provide some research-based suggestions on how to, to manage stress and so some stress-reducing exercises. So and I, those are just the management students that I know about. I'm sure there's other students doing amazing things across Providence College as well as other places. But um, what I like about those as, as two examples of, they really show how even in this time of social distancing, we see a group of people come together via technology in a way that shows their support 
and shows how much they care and are trying to provide additional resources to other people. Um, so I, again, I, I think while we have to be a little bit more creative about how we network and communicate and support each other using the technology that we have, that we can use. And those two examples just are so um, definitely illustrate, you know, kind of the points that you were making earlier about, you know, finding, using the support network and then spiraling out of that by being helpful to someone else. You know, they're trying these, both of these groups of management students are trying to help others. Um, I wonder about the connection to purpose. I feel like there's often a lot of discussion about how uh, a sense of purpose helps people in employment uh, define their role and and feel greater happiness and satisfaction in their jobs. Um, and it feels like these management students and I'm sure others, you know, have found creative ways to create themselves a role and a purpose to help fight this um, this problem that we're all facing. You know, the the spread of this disease. Um, and it, it seems like that would connect to that sense of, per, um, of helpfulness as well. It gives you a purpose. Absolutely. And I think what's really interesting is that these students have found a shared sense of purpose. And I think this could ha- be happening across organizations as well. Um, remember that we're all going through something similar, right? Your mother, your daughter, your colleague, your college roommate, your neighbor, guess what? We're all in this together. We're all feeling this. We have more in common now with more people than we usually do, right? And so I think acknowledging that shared experience and acknowledging that we are not alone in feeling what we're feeling and connecting to someone else is often a good way to to feel comfort yourself. And so I think that to the extent that we can find those shared connections, find those shared purposes, recognize that we're all in this together um, and that by leaning on each other, we can actually support each other, even though we can't necessarily see each other. And even though it certainly wasn't by choice. um, Right. Are there ideas, can you think of some suggestions or ideas to share with um, our listeners who, many of whom will probably be working virtually um, and not by choice? You know, there are many folks who are able to do that with the help of technology, but suddenly we're all thrust into it and it can be frustrating. Um, How, I mean, in your classes, such as leading from the middle, which is a class you teach to to MBA students, um, you're often giving your students advice on how to connect with superiors and their peers in their networks. How do we do that um, from home through a screen? Yeah, I, I think that's a, it's a great question. And um, I mean, I don't think I have any silver bullets necessarily, um, but I, I will say that we tend to be pretty good at using technology to connect for classes or to connect for work, but we don't always use it to connect socially. And so I think some of those things we might, that we do because we're in an office that make us feel like we're sharing community are missing now. So even if you do have a virtual conference room or conference meeting, spend the first few minutes connecting with each other. How are you? How's your family? What's going on? Even just do a virtual coffee break, 
right? Nine o'clock, every, every morning at nine o'clock or every Friday at nine o'clock, whatever the case may be, let's meet for coffee. Um, we're actually doing this as a, as a management department um, meeting every Wednesday um, just to check in, share best practices, answer questions, um, see who's got issues that we can all help each other address. I mean, this is new charted territory for everyone, right? Not a one of us is an expert, but I think just by the fact that we are have a, a weekly touch point helps me know I have people who have my back. And if I'm struggling and not sure what to do in one of my classes or, hey, do you have a great activity for this? Or how have you guys thought about moving this online? Um, it gives us a chance to virtually see each other. So I think we're using Zoom I think to the extent that you can use something that's video mediated, I think it can be really helpful. Um, so that I think is a good idea. Um, we could also, I suggested this with my, from, with my aunt. Um, she likes to host Sunday dinners. And of course we can't host Sunday dinner anymore. Um, but we could still do it virtually, right? So we could decide, hey, look, everybody, we're cooking spaghetti and meatballs this Sunday. Um, everybody in their own homes can cook their own spaghetti and meatballs and we can sit down and enjoy it together, uh, you know, together, <laughs> virtually together. Um, I think those kinds of things, the more that we can do that, um, use technology, not just for business and not just for school, but also for socializing, um, can be, can be helpful. Um, some other ideas, and, and I say these mostly, um, to help me, right? I need to say them out loud because they're good reminders for me too. Um, I, I really feel like I need to set a schedule um, because I think when you're working from home and you have everybody else working from home, um, even in the best of times, a lot of us struggle to separate work life from home life. And now that work life is home life, um, I think the the time can get even blurrier. And so I, I think it's helpful to really set a schedule of this is when I'm working, this is when I'm on, this is when I'm taking a break, and then this is when I, I, go, I go home, right? So I shut my computer down, I put it to rest, and I say, um, I'm now together with my family, and the kids are off of their online school, and my husband's were also working from home, and so like we can all shut down, and by 6 o'clock, like, let's have dinner together. Um, we're eating together more as a family than we have, because usually, I mean, my kids are teenagers, so they have sports practices or musical practice and they're you know busy doing other things um, and now they're around and it's beautiful and so we're cooking together and we are enjoying the the extra time that we have um, which I think is is wonderful I mean some other ideas I think are, are pretty standard right things like that are just plain good for you like get outside go for a walk um, you know, stick with your exercise routine or start an exercise routine. Maybe, you know, now is the time to go walk around your block. If, you know, you're someone who, who hasn't been doing a whole lot of exercise in the past, now's, now's a good chance. Um, in fact, there's a bunch of um, 
online exercise apps that are offering free stuff, right? Free classes. Like I know Peloton is one of them, but there's, I'm sure there's others. Um, I just connected my daughter to, um, we have a Peloton, which I absolutely love. Um, but anyway, I just connected her. There's um, meditation classes, there's yoga classes, there's cardio, there's body weight stuff, right? There's things that you can can be doing that are all free right now um, that you can do online to keep yourself busy and active. And you can do them together apart. And you can do them together. Yeah, I tried to convince my daughter to do the um, cardio dance, but I was like, I'm going to let the 16-year-old do the cardio dance because I'm not sure she actually wants to see me doing the cardio dance, but, um, you know, I I, I leave it to your imagination. Um. It is great that you and your family have been able to find that silver lining, though, when, you know, your student, your kids are teenagers, they may be out of the house sooner than you'd like. And so you got a little respite to uh, reconnect with them and spend those extra dinners with them. That's fantastic. Absolutely. It's great. Oh, I'm, I'm, there's one other thing that, that um, I can offer as a suggestion, sort of tying us back to helping behavior and recognizing how reaching out to others can be a really meaningful way to sort of alleviate some of the the social distancing. Um, There are some online volunteer opportunities. So uh, dosomething.org has a list. Uh, There's a whole bunch of different kinds of um, online volunteering that you could do. One of the other things that we did actually this past weekend Um, was spent some time going through all of our closets and coming up with things that we don't wear, that don't fit, that we don't need anymore, and um, bringing a whole bunch of clothes to be donated um, to a local um, shelter. So there are other kinds of things that um, we can do that can help us help others um, in a way that also helps ourselves. And probably, you know, if we think how hard this situation is for us, there are probably other people who are struggling even more. And so trying to help folks with fewer resources, you know, donating toys, old clothes, um, and thinking about that as helping the greater good, that's a really fantastic way to keep things in perspective, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Snyder, you referenced earlier how you and all your students have suddenly been transformed into virtual learners and and not by choice. Um, How is the transition to online learning going for you? For me, honestly, I I think it's going well, fine. (laughs) I think the actual true testament of how well it's going may actually be asking my students how they think it's going. You know, what I said to them was, aside from the fact that this is terrible and people are sick and people are dying, right, which is awful, this is an opportunity for us to try something new. If we can look at it as one big, giant educational adventure and see how we can learn best then I think there's a lot of opportunity for us, actually. Um, And, you know, for me, it's really making me think hard about what I'm teaching and how I'm teaching and what I'm hoping my students get out of it. Um, So I teach in in what's called a marathon, right? So I I only have marathon sections. They're two and a half hours long. So you can imagine (laughs) right on on a good day, 
in an in-person class, it can be really difficult to hold someone's attention for two and a half hours. Um, think about that now, transitioning that to online. And it means that I really have to be much more creative about how I'm getting content across and how the students are learning. So for me, what I'm trying to do, and again, this is where I say the students are going to be a better judge of whether or not I'm doing a good job, <laughs> is I'm having them do a lot more uh, small group work. So Zoom, you know, there's breakout rooms and you can use breakout rooms. And so I'm having um, students in breakout rooms and talking about um, some of the, the case that they're working on and as it applies to them, but also the, the protagonist in the case at hand. And then I'm having them come back and present their findings to the rest of the group. So there's a lot more, um, you know, flipped classroom kind of stuff where students are in small groups working together and then coming back and presenting out their findings to the rest of us. Um, and I mean, I, I hope they're engaged with that. Um, you know, my, my advice to them, again, I, I say, because I need to be reminded of it as well, is be patient, be kind to each other, right? Recognize we're all trying our best. And I think if your assumption going in is, look, I am trying to make the very best lesson I can for you. And I hope that you're learning something and I hope that you're engaged and, and getting something out of it. Um, and my assumption is going to be that you're coming to class prepared and ready to learn. But I get that that this may not be your choice. right? I get that you might not really be happy about having your senior spring semester um, at home. But we're all here and let's make the best of it again. Let's make it sort of an adventure in learning and what can we do? What, what translates well online? Um, what doesn't? And I'm teaching right now. I'm in the middle of a negotiations class. And I was a little worried about how I was going to do negotiations mediated through technology. But honestly, it gives us a good opportunity to discuss, well, how is that different? Right? So they, do, they, they meet once a week and we do simulated negotiations each week. And so they've all been up to this point, up to this past week, they've all been done in person. So they, you know, get into my class and they get assigned their role and they see who they're paired with and they go off, sort of separate themselves around the room and go off and, and do their negotiation. And then after 20 minutes or 30 minutes, however long the, the simulation is, I bring them all back and then we debrief the whole ex exercise and activity. And so this past time, I used breakout rooms, and I sorted, sorted them each into their little pair, and I put them out into their breakout room, and I pulled them all back. So, I mean, really, the, the process was identical. They were doing exactly the same thing that they were doing in a live class. They're now just doing it mediated through Zoom. So, um, it, But it does give us a chance to say, how is that different? How did that feel different to you um, in terms of a negotiation face-to-face -face where I can shake hands with a person and look them, uh, you know, eye to eye um, versus this technology mediated negotiation? It gives us a chance that I wouldn't have had if this was just, a, you know, an in-person class. Um, we wouldn't have had that as an experiment to, to know how does it impact you, um, if at all. And so, I mean, again, I, I don't have any magic answers other than to say it's not going to be perfect. And I'm OK with that. And I think I hope my students are OK with that, too, because we're all just learning. 
trying to figure it out and make the best of it um, as best we can. And like you said, silver linings, right? I mean, some of these students may in their future lives be doing a virtual job interview or um, negotiating a contract virtually. Um, Certainly the seniors will be right now if they're looking to get employed uh, in the near future. So having some experience trying to read a person's cues and, and, you know, you know, kind of read, um, trying to, to figure out what the next step would be, you know, they've got experience now because they're, they're in that class. So that's right. um, Yeah. And how do you build trust via technology? How do you read emotions through technology? How do we understand, um, how to build value between each other, um, in a way that benefits both sides? Um, throughout the negotiation. And, and so I think that um, it is good experience. You know, again, I don't know that it's necessarily experience that any of them wanted <laughs> per se, but I do think it gives them all an opportunity. It gives all of us um, an opportunity to, to learn some new skills and to think about um, how can we make the most out of this as an opportunity to change the way we're teaching and change the way we're learning. Um, in a way that I, I hope builds some resilience, um, builds some new strengths in our students um, and our faculty, and really helps us think through what is the best way to communicate those key lessons that we want to get across. And hopefully some of these students will develop good stories for themselves about how they survived this period and um, they'll be able to share those in the future with future employers at job interviews or anything else. You know. Absolutely. Dr. Snyder, it's been so great talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. You are so welcome. It's a pleasure to see you again, Liz. Thank you for inviting me. Subscribe to the Providence College podcast in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please review and share with others. Thanks for listening and go Friars.